Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Grass withers, flower fades, word of our God stands forever. What time is it? Time is it? <laughs> and when I asked that question, how many thought, I don't know, it's getting, what time is it? We check our watches. Because typically, when you ask what time it is, we mean, well, that's how we think of time. What, what time is it in the morning? Our cycle around the sun and our revolutions in that cycle around the sun has given us 24 hours in a day, and we split that up into minutes and seconds, and so we're able to figure out what time it is from uh, this general reality. It's very important reality. If we didn't, weren't able to figure out what time it was, we wouldn't know how to keep track of our seasons. We wouldn't know when it was time to plant and when it's time to harvest. We wouldn't know many things. We wouldn't know when it's time to, to get the lawnmower out and to sharpen up the hedge trimmers and all these certain things. If we didn't have any concept of what time it is. So it's, it's very important to, to know what time it is. These are all things that we have been given God and his orderly world, now, not a world of disorder, it, is, it has order to it, has created time so that we can understand what we see. But there are times that, these are things we can keep track of, but there are times that are totally out of our control. Um, right now, I have a niece who is basically 39 weeks pregnant. And last week, she was having contractions and she went because she was ready for, for this birth to happen. And she's still a week and a half later waiting for this to happen. There's times, those of you mothers here who've gone through that, you know what I'm talking about, or have friends that you've seen go through this. There's times that are just beyond our control. She thinks it's time. And yet, evidently, it isn't. As a mailman walking around, we just were talking at the uh, men's table this morning during fellowship hour, I'm convinced that it's time for cooler weather. Uh, I think I'm ready to stop sweating all afternoon. And every, the, you know, every now and then the news report will come along, hey, it's going to rain and going to be a cool down. And then pretty soon it's really hot and humid again. So I'm, I'm ready for a cool down. I think it's time, but clearly it isn't. Um, 
I also sometimes think that it's time still for me to be young and quick to recover and, and, and not need any sleep. And I, now I've learned that uh, I get tired out and I'm sore when I wake up and all I've done is played a game of tag in my yard with my kid. I think it's time to still be young and youthful. And I realize that, no, the time is moving along. Things are going somewhere. We, we, we have time is a very real thing. And we, we have parts of it that we can just observe and we know that they're going on, but they are they're absolutely out of our control. God has his clock. God has his timing. And he works according to his purposes. We are not our own. We are not in charge. God has his timing. And that's what our poem this morning is talking about. That reality, this opening verses of chapter 3. There is a season for everything. And a time for every matter. God knows when it's birth 30. He knows when it's time, when the clock strikes, when it is time for the baby to be born. Does, does anyone here, did anyone here decide when they were going to be born? Any one of you decide when you wanted to be born? No. And you might hear family and say, well, you are a real stubborn baby. You know, are you real stubborn or are you real eager? And you, but I mean, as far as you control what year you were born... You control what decades you were born into. We have no control over those things. No one knows when they were going to be born, but there is a time for it. And the, the poem is speaking about this reality of, though we don't know what the time is, God does. There's a time to be born. God was not surprised when you were born. But also, God's not surprised when anyone dies. There's a time to be born, there's a time to be die, to die. This this whole is is fourteen different. It's called a merism, if you care uh, about this this way. This poem works of speaking about both extremes. There's a time to be born and a time to die, meaning that there's these there's, these are the two extreme ends. But there's a time for both. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. There's a time to kill and there's a time to heal. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. And it's just these, these both these opposites, but speaking about the reality that there is a time for all of these things. So I ask again, what time is it? What time is it? And the reality is we don't really know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we can look at our watches and you can tell me what time it is. But what time is it in your life? What's going on? What is the thing that's happening right now? What, in the line, if you can make a timeline from your birthday to your death day, where are you at in that timeline? You don't know. <laughs> no one knows. None of us here know. You might, what percentage of that lifeline is used up? Are you at 50%? You got, you got half of it all ahead of you. Are you at 90%? Are you at 99%? Are you at 99.9%? No one, no, you don't know. You don't know. And we can look around and we can make guesses. Don't be so mean as to do that with our congregation about who is a little further along in their percentage. But you know, how many times are we shocked and find out that it's actually the other way around? We don't know where we are along that line. This poem is often quoted as a, you know, as a folk song. 
made popular, unfortunately, by the birds. You know, if don't, don't study this passage and then you get stuck with the birds in your head. The, the, the group, the birds, B-Y-R-D-S, the birds singing, turn, turn, turn to everything. There is a season, you know, I'm not, sorry, I'm going to put the earworm in your ear now. But it gets stuck in your head. And it's meant, that song is arranged in a way that it's like a, it's an anthem of peace, right? Because he adds a little bit. He says, a time for war, a time for peace. I swear it's not too late. He, that's not in here. <laughs> that's not in the actual passage. They add that, that it's some sort of anthem for peace. See, there's still time to do all of these things. But that's not what this poem is about. It's just putting out this reality that there's a time for every purpose, but we don't really know when it is. God's in charge of all of these things. There's a time for them. But as far as us being able to diagnose what time is next, we only know the time whenever it occurs. We only know the time as it occurs. Search as we may to know beforehand what time is coming. We really don't know. And the frustration just comes out as we continue reading after the poem, right? Because he's speaking about, we read to verse 11, But he goes on in verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is, is already has been. And that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. God is, these verses are being brutal in their honesty. God has put this eternity in our hearts. This this desire in each one of us for for transcendent meaning. We want something big. We want purpose. You can talk to, um, you know, your most unbelieving friend. And they are dissatisfied or they are unhappy or they're searching. They're trying to figure life out. They're trying to find meaning. God has, that's, that's a result of being made in the image and likeness of God. Imago Dei. They're, God has put eternity in our hearts. We're all searching for meaning, trying to figure things out. There's some intrinsic desire in each one of us for a transcendent meaning. What is it all about? And this, this is where this goes on. This Yet for all of our searching under the sun, right? That one of those themes from this book, under the sun. All of our searching under the sun for this meaning, we are not able to find it. We know things happen. The poem says there's a time for all of these things, yet what we do fades. We can't add anything to it. We can't take anything away from it. We, We cannot determine them ourselves. They are. They are. So... In a verse thir- of, of in a verse fourteen in chapter three, he says, "I perceive uh, nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away from it. God has done it, and it gives us a purpose statement." It says, at "The end of verse fourteen, so that people fear before Him, so that people fear before Him." This is another. We talk about the themes of vanity, the theme of under the sun. Another recurrent theme in the book of Ecclesiastes is the fear. Of God is this reality that we are not God, someone else is, and there is a, a transcendent, transcendental, there's a fear that exists there. Now, sometimes we jump immediately to, well, when we talk about the fear of God, we mean awe or respect, and, and certainly we do. When we talk about the fear of God, there's a sense of just 
awe, respect. This is, the, this is majestic, the majesty of God. And so we have fear and, and awe and respect of him. But it's, it's also more than that. This is really speaking about the reality that particularly if you are against God, if you are not repentant, if you are not one of God's people, there's a real reason to fear because justice is coming. And so these times that you have no control over, they're all going on around you and you can't add to them, you can't take away from them. They're happening. God has his timing and we're caught up in it. This is done so that we might fear the Lord because we begin to realize, I don't have control over anything. And if I'm left on my own, justice is coming. And why should I think that what I have coming for me is going to be any better or worse than anyone else. And that's the idea that Solomon goes on with there in, in these next verses. The end of chapter 3 says this. It says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. There's the, there's the roses of Ecclesiastes coming at us again. Isn't this, I mean, that's why this book is avoided. Because here, this is reality. Where there, should be wicked, where there should be wickedness, righteousness, good things happen. And where good things should happen, wickedness happens. And we think there's this justice, but we look around us, and why should we be convinced that there's ever going to be any justice? Because... Man and all of his exalted mannishness, like we have this conscience, we, we have all this technology, we have all this intelligence, all of this uh, regality, this exalted mannishment, mannishness, we die and decompose just the same as every other beast across the globe. How can we think that there's anything better for us unless we just intentionally fool ourselves under the sun there's no reason to think that anything is going to be any better. Only if we are happy to fool ourselves. So this is the, this is the dark descent of Ecclesiastes. This reality that if, there is, if under the sun is all that there is and all we are is just the, the cosmic subjects to, to a time lord, uh, then, then what are we? We, we? we are lost. We are adrift. Everything is vanity, vapor, meaningless smoke. We are nothing if there is no transcendent hand holding on to us. We are nothing more than the squashed bugs on the windshield of life. Just come along and squash and then eventually the wipers come on and it's gone. It's vanity. It's meaningless. So one of our big problems, if we fight for our meaning from some point within ourselves some point within our own lives, we will find ourselves frustrated in the futility of this life. One of our big problems is that we are trying to answer the question of what time it is, or what time is it, from the perspective of God himself. We want to be the one above the sun who diagnoses the times. We want to be the one who says, no, it's time for this, God. It's time for this. Okay, this is going on in my life. 
This is what's next. Here is what should happen next. We want to answer the question as if we are the sovereign Lord of the domain of the earth. That's how we want to answer the question. What time it is? Well, I've, what time is it? I've got some ideas. I think it's time for this. I think it's time for peace and prosperity. I think it's time for all of these wonderful things to happen. We want to answer the question as if we are God himself. We want to be the ones in control of the seasons and therefore answering questions from on high. We do not like to be humbled. with the reality that Ecclesiastes is throwing at us is that we are creatures under the hand of a sovereign God. Embracing life as creatures is what I've subtitled our Ecclesiastes series. Embracing life as creatures. But we don't like that. We don't want to embrace that reality. We want to answer the question of what time is it from a position of a sovereign God. But if we can get low enough, if we can put ourselves in our proper place, answering what time it is, what time is it from a creature's position, there is great comfort security, and ultimately unshakable joy when we embrace this reality that Ecclesiastes is trying to point out to us over and over and over again. The first way we must see our answer to the question of what time is it is by looking at what time it is for all of us in our natural state. If we are left here alone, if we are, if we are, if it is just under the sun, if we are creatures who just remain in our rebellion against God, loving ourselves, not loving Him, the only answer is that the time, what time it is, is time for our judgment. Our judgment is quickly approaching. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So let me encourage you in these next few moments right now to consider how you're standing before God is. If your life were to end in the next five minutes, is God going to be pleased with you when you show up? And, and upon what basis would he be? Many people believe uh, that God's going to be okay with them for various different reasons. Some think basically God would grade on a curve. Well, I did die in church, <laughs> if you die in the next five minutes, right? So I'm better than everybody else who wasn't here, so right, I'm, I guess I'm better off. Or maybe they aren't so crass as to say that, but they'll say something along the lines of, well, I can name you a lot of people way worse than me, God, so if you're not taking them, you, gotta, you can't take me. God's going to grade on a curve, right? And so that's going to be the basis of my, my hope to stand before him. Some will think God will judge on scales, right? Well, I've done a lot of things I shouldn't do, but you know what, darn it? I did a lot of good things too. And so hopefully my good things are going to outweigh my bad things. And when I get before God, it's going to, the scales are going to be balanced enough that God's going to be happy when, he, when I show up. Or maybe they think God will, it's going to judge the, the motives of our hearts. And so, yeah, I've done lots of bad things, but there's all this reason. There's all these motives. There's all this stuff that's happened to me. And my heart essentially is good, but I've just messed up a few times. And there, there's many different ways that we come across or we try to justify or, or, or say how we're going to stand before God. But throughout history, in the writings of Scripture, God has spoken differently about what he will find in humanity that stands before him in and of themselves, he finds transgression. 
God is a holy, just, righteous, perfect God. Therefore, everyone who does not holy, righteous, perfect, and just as he is, stands in opposition and underneath his justice. His standard is holiness. And so if you've fallen any, any bit short of his perfections, that means what is coming your way is justice, is judgment for who you are. Any failing to glorify him as the supreme treasure, to glorify him as the supreme God and creator of the universe, any disobedience there or any negligence of doing what he has commanded is sin. Listen to this passage from Colossians chapter 3. Verses 5 and 8 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouths. All of these things are things that produce the wrath of God towards sinners. If you are standing on your own merit, the only answer to what time is it is that it is time for justice. It is time for trouble. That's, that's what time it is if we're on our own. However, there is good news if that doesn't sound like what time you want it to be for you, time for judgment and time for trouble, then there is good news. And, it is, and if that doesn't sound good, that is the fear of God. You shouldn't like the sound of that. That is the fear of the Lord working in you. That I don't want to be in a place of that where my time, my watch says it's time for justice and time for judgment. The other answer to the question of what time is it is that it is time to repent. And time to trust in Christ. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, their Pharisees are out and they're, 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 they're questioning whether they should you know, look to Jesus as the Savior. Is this, is this really the, the Messiah who has come? And he says that they're very good at interpreting weather patterns. You know, you look at the sky and you say, hey, it's going to rain tomorrow or it's going to do such and such. And you can interpret all of these physical signs, but you cannot interpret the times through it is time that to interpret our times now, it is time to turn from sin and to look to Christ. Through his redeeming work on the cross, shedding his blood for our forgiveness, the judgment that is headed our way, this is nothing to, to, be, to, to uh, you know, lose attention over. This is not the time to lose attention. This judgment that is coming our way, Christ takes it upon himself on the cross, shedding his blood for our forgiveness. The judgment headed towards us has been diverted, has been imputed or given to Christ instead of to us. So that those who are trusting in Christ, what time is it? It is time then for repentance, faith in him and for their forgiveness, for their reconciliation to this God. What time it is, if that is what has happened in an individual's life, we know that it is time for God's disposition toward them, not of one of wrath anymore, but one of steadfast love, one of support, one of comfort, one of promise and fulfillment. That is what time it is for all of those who have trusted in Christ. And that's where the really good news is. 
Okay, this is really good. I, there's, I said there's great comfort, joy, and security in knowing that God controls the times and the seasons. And that is where we must ground this thought. Because the heart and intention of God is no longer against the rebels that have trusted in Christ, they can be confident that what he purposes for them is their ultimate good is their ultimate good. They can take passages like Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. We can take words like that and exhale. God has his seasons. God has his times. We are not our own. He makes everything beautiful in its time. Not because, we can exhale there, not because God will make everything beautiful according to our time. Okay, it's important we get that, right? It isn't God makes everything beautiful in our time. That's what we wanted to say. I wish Ecclesiastes said, God makes everything beautiful according to your time, Darren. It doesn't. It says he makes all things beautiful in his time. It's the Old Testament version of Romans 8, 28. God works all all things together for the good of those who love him and, and who are called according to his purpose. We know that for those who love God, Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Because the heart and intention of God is no longer against the rebels who have trusted in Christ, they can be confident that what he purposes for them is for their ultimate good. So knowing that, we ought to live both sober and satisfied, both with meaning and with mirth, both purposefully and pleased. We ought to live sober and satisfied with meaning and with mirth. Mirth meaning joy. There's a, there's a happy, life has meaning, but it also has great joy. Both of these things going on. Sober and satisfied with meaning and with mirth, purposefully and pleased at the same time. Both of these going on. Why soberly? Why meaningfully? Why purposefully? Because we do not know what day or season this truly is. And so we ought to be sober with the days that we've been given. I got into sundials. This, I shouldn't have said that. It shows what such a nerd I am. I got into sundials for a while, but and sundials all have like these great Latin inscriptions on them, and they're just, it's like memento mori, remember your death. It's all this really dark, but just, you can hear the wisdom, and one of these Latin phrases is just stuck with me, and it is the Latin phrase, ultima latent ut observanter omni. Ultima latent ut observanter omni. I have no idea if I'm saying that exactly right. That's how I remember it. Ultima latent ut observanter omni. And that is Latin. For ultima latent, the, the final is hidden. Latent is, is, is hidden or concealed. The final is concealed so that we would observe, observanter, observe them all. The final, the ultimate, the final hour, the reason why it's on a sundial is it's saying, your final hour is concealed from you so that you'll observe every one of them. Because you never know which one's the last one. Observant, uh, ultima latent, it's hidden. Ultima latent, ut observanter omni. The last hour is hidden so that we might observe them all. We do not know. The reason why it's soberly, meaningfully, purposefully is because we do not know if this is our last day or not. God has his seasons and his times. They're not always ours. 
But if it is, make it a day that honors Christ. If this is the last day, make it a day that glorifies God. As the saying goes, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Or the psalm writer says in Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We ought to live sober, but both sober and satisfied. Sober and satisfied with both meaning. Life has a purpose because there is a God above it all. There is a meaning. There is a purpose. There is, there is something to be sober about because this may be the last day. But it is both sober and satisfied. Both with meaning and with mirth. Both purposefully and pleased. How? Because ultimately, as those who have been reconciled to God, all of these things are in his hands. And there is no better place to be. We cannot control the times, but he doesn't let a single one out of his grasp. Does that mean that he will make all things beautiful in our time? No, but it means he will make all things beautiful in his time. Does that mean we understand exactly why wickedness happens where we think righteousness should and where righteousness happens where we think wickedness should? No, it doesn't explain that. Ecclesiastes is is just opening up or laying bare the reality that there are these things in life that we puzzle at and we look at when this doesn't make any sense. And under, if, if this is all there is, is life under the sun and all these things don't make sense, everything's vanity under the sun. But if there is a transcendental God, if there is a God above it all, if there's a God who then does show up in the person of Jesus Christ to reconcile people to himself, then everything has meaning and purpose. And yes, everything will one day be made beautiful. Does that mean we can comprehend how that works? No. But God has spoken and he is moving. This is the way that he is moving. He will not let a single moment out of his grasp. The reality of life is that we do not know what the temporal time is. What time is it? We don't really know. It's time to trust Christ. It's time to repent. It's time to trust Christ. It's time to turn to him. And it's time to live both soberly and satisfied. Because we know if we are his, we know that all things are in his hands and that he will not let us go. He will care for his creatures. Knowing this, we ought to rest in him, knowing that all things rest in our father's hands. Let's pray. God, help us to embrace our lives as creatures. There is so much that we can look at in life around us and puzzle at, things that don't add up, life that doesn't always make sense. And where can a creature turn but to their creator? So, Father, I pray for every person in this room this morning struggling, every person asking questions. Father, you would draw us near to you. I pray that you would show us afresh for the first time the joy that there is in the gospel, the hope that we have in our reconciliation to this God who though when we look around we can see 
All things are outside of our hands, but not a one of them is beyond yours. So Father, help us this morning to trust Christ and put our lives in your hands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.